0: She thanks for that. Um, I like the way that. years look like. And in typical perpetuate style, we don't know. Because we find that that I don't this has worked out this evening we have a, a corkman leading service and a German boy like not to have a go to talk to Belfast people about what we should be doing in Belfast but hey that's what we have Jeremiah 29, flick it open I'm not preaching this passage this evening, I'm going to do about five or six minutes on it, and then we'll move on. But I do want to start here. It's a fascinating part of God's work for me, and just to, you'll see the have any idea, gives a clue. It takes the form of a letter, it's the recording of a letter, which uh, is the prophet Jeremiah. He's a prophet to God's people, Judah. Uh, They have recently been sent into exile. So, what God did with his people, uh, okay, one minute of history of Israel. Israel splits into two the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Both are disobedient to God and both end up in exile. Israel goes first and Judah goes second. So this letter is in the context of kind of the very end of the road for those uh, failing northern and southern kingdoms that have gone into exile in in Babylon. And Jeremiah then writes to him, and I think that's quite an interesting moment, but what do you say (coughs) to these guys who have been warned for centuries? That if they disobey God, something like this will happen. What do you say when it does happen? Uh, so let's read uh, a few verses together. Just beginning at verse 1 there. This is the text of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people, Nebuchadnezzar, had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon had said. This is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile in from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord, the, Lord, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Their prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them declares the Lord. It's quite amazing what Jeremiah says this letter. I'm going to say it's very different than what I would have anticipated. Um, God's people living in a foreign city among pagan people. You might expect the advice from something along these lines. Look out for those uh, nasty Babylonians. Keep yourselves to yourselves. Batten down the hatches and wait for such times as you're released from captivity. And get back to your own land and get on with being my people. But that's what that says. God, for his prophet, tells the people in Babylon, verse 5, build houses and settle down there. You'll notice if you've ever bought your first home, or maybe some of you have even built a house, how much investment there is. There's no greater way to invest in a place than to say, "I'm going to build a house. I'm going to live there." Plant gardens and eat what they produce. That takes time. Be around for a while to see a garden producing a It seems like God's saying, take your time, make plans to stay here for a while, not, not weeks or months, but seasons and years. Marry your sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. God seems to be warning his people against living defensively. He seems to be saying, grow your community in Babylon. Enjoy life. Get along with it and thrive even in that city where none of you have ever dreamed you'd want to be. The same than we might have expected. In a verse seven God encourages the people: seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray for it. That's God's command to his people while they're in exile in Babylon. I hope. By uh, now, just a short look at these verses, it's becoming a little bit clear where we've chosen our sermon series title from, and uh, why we might have done that. I'm not going to labor this, this evening. We, we actually did a course here, um, I think it was about a couple of years ago, where we considered whether the church that we're a part of today might be increasingly living through something like an exile. Because you're your stranger is not in your own land. To be a Christian person in Belfast is not maybe as mainstream, I think, as it was 30 or 50 years ago. It may be that we actually are living something increasingly uh, like what the Babylonian exiles were living. And so our questions may be not very different than theirs. What would it mean for us in 2014 to seek the peace and prosperity of our city? What if we were to give ourselves sacrificially to the city of Belfast? In this series of eight evening services, we're gonna to start to think about that. This is very unusual for me. Because I don't know where this series is going to go. I have some ideas of where we're going to set off. But I'm not sure what the Lord has for us. We'll take time to hear his word and to think about our city. What we're going to do is, yeah, we're going to listen to some teaching from the Bible about the city. I'm going to say that most of us have never had a chance to do that. Maybe don't know that there'd be anything in the Bible about cities or or much to say, but that's not the case. So we're going to try and learn a bit from God's Word. We're going to try and learn some stuff about Belfast, and we'll do that in various ways. Mostly we'll invite some people in to come and to tell us about work that they're doing or parts of the city that they're in, and we're going to pray for our city. And we're going to ask God to, to do a petite bit at the end of that prayer this evening. We're going to take time to ask God to, to lead us some guys. Not sure where it's going, but we're glad to be set right on our journey. When I was thinking about how best to get us up and running, to get uh, to get us focused, I um, a couple of ideas, we're going to use both of those ideas the next couple of weeks the next couple of times we meet. Tonight, I'm going to share with you a talk that I had the privilege of hearing in, when I was at the third Congress in World Evangelization of Cape Town in 2010. It seems to me, if we're going to start to think about reaching out to the city, it would be good to hear from somebody who knows something about that rather than me. So, I'm going to invite you to listen with me for a few minutes to Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, who's had a very effective urban ministry in that city for over 20 years now, uh, is also responsible for a a, a movement uh, of church planting throughout cities uh, all over the world. So we're going to listen to this address we gave to the 4,000 delegates in Cape Town, it's kind of, it seems to me like his chance to say, in 17 minutes, I'll give you a clue if to listen. It's his chance to make a pitch for the importance of God's people thinking about cities. Listen and see. Um, well, I'm going to challenge you. I challenge you not to be excited about the prospect of reaching a city uh, after listening to, to this presentation.
1: Why we must reach the cities, the great global megacities, how we should reach those cities, and why we can reach those cities. Why we must, how we should. Why must we reach cities? Because cities are so crucially important. Culturally, missiologically, viscerally. Culturally, in the last year, both uh, the Financial Times and Foreign Policy, two very important international journals, did major issues on megacities and the importance of them. And in Foreign Policy, we read this, the 21st century will not be dominated by America or China or Brazil or India, but by the city. In an age that appears increasingly unmanageable, cities rather than states are becoming the islands of governance on which the future world order will be time, technology, and population growth have massively accelerated the advent of this new urbanized era. Already, more than half of the world lives in cities, and that percentage is growing rapidly. Just 100 cities account for 30% of the world's economy and almost all of its innovation. If you want human life as it is lived in this world to be shaped at all by Jesus Christ you have to we have to go to the city secondly missiologically we have to go because they're so important missiologically four kinds of people that are there first of all if you want to reach the next generation you've got to go to the cities because young adults disproportionately want to live in cities and that's where they go You've got to go where they are if you want to reach the new generation. In whatever culture you're in, you've got to go to cities. Another group. The most unreached people in the world, the most unreached peoples, are more reachable in cities. When they immigrate to cities, either from the rural areas in the cities, in their own homeland, or to other countries' cities, uh, they, they break their kinship ties, uh, they're in a more pluralistic environment. They are far more, humanly speaking, open to the gospel than they would have ever been in their previous habitat. If you want to reach the most unreached peoples in the world, go to cities. So you have to reach the unreached peoples. There you reach the younger generation. Uh, thirdly, the people who tend to make the films, write the books, do the business deals, they're there. The people that have the biggest impact on the cultures of the world are there. And lastly, intriguingly, the poor. If you want to go to if you go to cities, you not only reach the elites of the world, but you reach the poor. Something like one-third of all the people moving into the great cities of the world today are going to live in shanty towns. And God cares about the poor, and he loves the poor. And if you go to the cities, you not only reach the next generation, you not only reach the most unreached peoples, you not only reach the people at the top, you reach the people who God loves at the bottom. Missiologically, that's where you have to go to reach those people. So culturally, missiologically, but the city is important viscerally. You now, what do I mean by viscerally? From the heart. In Jonah chapter 4, at the end, uh, Jonah is very unhappy because God has not destroyed the great city of Nineveh. Very unhappy. But he's very happy with the vine that has grown up. A beautiful vine. He's gotten very emotionally attached to it. Uh, because it's beautiful and it gives him shade in that very hot environment. And that's natural and right to love part of God's green earth. But then the vine dies... And he gets anguished and discouraged and depressed and God makes an argument God says to him you are emotionally attached to the vine and not caring about the, 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 where's, what happens to Nineveh Jonah you love plants but I love people now Psalm 19 tells us nature does reflect God's glory But human beings, according to Genesis 1, made in the image of God, reflect God's glory more than anything else in creation. And in cities, you have more image of God per square inch than anywhere else in the world. And so God makes a numbers argument. You know, we're not supposed to care about numbers. He makes a numbers argument. He says, Jonah, there's 120,000 people in Nineveh. It's a massive number for the time that do not know their right hand from their left, how can you fail not to be moved by that? I am. A missionary friend of mine once quipped, the country is where there's more plants than people, and the city is where there are more people than plants. And because God loves people more than plants, he's got to love the city more than the country. And that is exactly God's argument to Jonah. People are streaming into the city, as you just saw. 300 years ago, less than 3% of the world's population lived in cities. Today, it's over 50% and growing rapidly. It's estimated that 8 million people every two months move into the cities of the world. That's one new Bangkok every two months. The church has to be everywhere there's people, right? But the people are moving into the city faster than the churches. If you love what God loves, that's the visceral. If you love what God loves, you'll love the city. If you want to go where the people are going, you've got to go to the city. And our churches are not going to the city anywhere nearly as fast as the people are. That's why we must reach the city. Now secondly, briefly, how we should. And I just want to give you some... Headings here. Those of you who want to go deeper can come to the multiplex later. Uh, There's a, you know, it's urban China is different than China. Urban America is different than America. Urban Africa is different than Africa. And when you take churches, which we tend to do, that have been forged out in Africa and put them into urban Africa, we find they're not effective. We wonder why. Because they have to be contextualized, and our and our churches are not contextualized for the city, and therefore they're not being effective. If you're going to contextualize the church for the city, consider these headings. Churches in the city have to be extremely patient with charges of cultural insensitivity, because center city churches will always have people from different cultures. Every culture conceives of time differently. Emotional expressiveness differently. Honor and shame differently. They make decisions differently. And if you're going to have an effective center city church in these great global cities, they're going to be multicultural. And therefore, people are always going to be charging one another with cultural insensitivity. And unless you, if you're if you not extremely patient with
0: constant
1: charges of cultural insensitivity, you're not going to be an effective urban church leader. You have to always be expecting it. You have to always be patient and listening to it. And you know you'll never solve it. But the fact that you're open to it and you're learning from it and you're, you're, you're being patient with it proves that you have begun to contextualize for a city. Because churches outside of cities really don't have to put up with that kind of uh, conflict. Secondly, churches and cities have to show people how their faith relates to their work, their job, their vocation. People in cities, their work is a much bigger part of their lives than it is outside. And as Dorothy Sayers, the the British essayist, said, what good is a church that tells you nothing that's relevant to nine-tenths of your life? And that's nine, if urban dwellers, nine-tenths of their life is their work. I remember some years ago an actor came to me who had just become a Christian at my church. And he sat down and he said, I want you to disciple me. I said, great. How to do evangelism, Bible study. I knew all this stuff. I learned it in seminary. So I sat down and he said, what roles can I take as a Christian and what roles should I not take? And then he said, what do you think of method acting? And I said, what's method acting? Well, he said, so here, you know, in, in America, they say, don't act angry, get angry. But in Britain, they say, act angry. What should it be? As a Christian, you know, what does Christianity have to say to these various things? And I looked at them and I said, I have no idea. Because I only know how to disciple people by bringing them out of their work world into my church world. That's how I was trained. But in your, if you're in an urban church, you can't do that. You have to help people integrate their faith with their work. Thirdly, you have to be constantly open to disorder and change. You have to live with that and know you're going to live with that. Fourthly, your church has to be intensely evangelistic and famous for its concern for justice at the same time. Very rare, but you can't afford not to have that balance if you're, uh, unless, if you're an urban church. Number five, there has to be a commitment to the arts. Uh, churches in the city, uh, churches outside the city do not need, usually, to be as attentive to the arts, but in the city you have to be. And lastly, sixthly, churches in the city have to be cooperative with other churches of other denominations and traditions in a way they can can afford not to be elsewhere. You can just live in your own tribe. In the city, you'll never reach the city unless you're very cooperative with other believers across denominational lines. Those are some headings. I, I know that all of those things are things that Outside of cities are optional. It would be nice if you have them in your church. In cities, they're absolutely necessary. Lastly, let me tell you why we can do it. Many of us are defeatist about this. We're afraid the big cities, we don't know how to reach them. We can do it. Here's why we can. In Genesis 18, God visits Abraham and says to Abraham, I'm going to go destroy these cities, your neighboring cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham approaches God, and he does three things that are just remarkable. First of all, he begins to pray for an unbelieving city. That's unique in the Old Testament. Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah prayed for their own people. But Abraham begins to pray for these unbelieving cities. Oh, yes, you say, he was concerned about Lot, but why in the his nephew, who lived there. But why didn't Abraham say, get Lot free, then blast him? He didn't do that. He's praying for these unbelieving, wicked, pagan cities. That's the first thing he did. The second thing he did was he essentially endangered himself for their sake. Because he approaches God, the Holy God, and asks him again and again to spare the city. At one point, Abraham knows how dangerous this is. He says... I, who am but dust and ashes, let me speak again. But the most dangerous thing for him was by sparing the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah continued to be a threat to Abraham. They were dangerous for Abraham. This could have been Abraham's opportunity to get rid of them, but he didn't. He prayed for these cities, he sacrificed, risked his life for these cities, but most of all, he made a theological case. It's an amazing case. He said, if there's 50 righteous men, if there's 40 righteous people, if there's 30 righteous people, will you spare these cities who deserve destruction for the sake of these righteous people? And you know what that theological argument is? It was a case because Abraham was acting as a representative. He was acting as a high priest. And he was was making a case. And he was saying, is it possible that the righteousness of the few and secure mercy for the many the undeserving many could the righteousness of the few somehow save the undeserving many but in the end though Abraham is acting as a high priest he didn't get his prayer did he it didn't work Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed they didn't have the high priest they needed Jesus Christ the ultimate high priest Abraham prayed for people interceded for people who might have killed him but Jesus Christ Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing Jesus Christ interceded for people who did kill him Abraham risked his life for these unbelieving cities Jesus gave his life for the unbelievers but most interesting of all Abraham had a theological concept. Isn't it possible that somehow the righteousness of the few might cover the sin of the many? But Jesus Christ is the reality. Jesus Christ is the only righteous one. God made him sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He's the reality to which Abraham pointed. And when you find him your Savior... When he becomes your high priest, you and I can become the priests that the cities of this world need. We can pray for them, like the Jews were told, pray for Babylon and seek the peace of the city. We should sacrificially lay our lives out for the people in the city. They should see, even though we don't believe in them, we care about them. We love them. Neighbor love. We should pray for them because we have now been empowered to be the priests that the cities need. We should sacrificially lay out our lives for them. But most of all, we should offer the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover their sin, that they may be saved. Because he's the priest that those cities needed, we now, believing in him, become the priest that our cities need. And we can be the priest that our cities need. Look at the cities of this world. Look at the masses of these cities, God says. Why aren't you moved by them? Why aren't you going there? So let's go. Thank you.
0: do is take a bit of time uh, for weeks, possibly months, to to think about some of the themes that were were raised in that talk. So I said a moment ago that there were two things I wanted to try and do to get the ball rolling uh, to get us thinking about the city. Um, By the way, what I'll do is I'll I'll put a link for that video onto the weekly email that we sent out this week, so if you want to Listen to it again. By the way, I'm conscious it wasn't very loud. We were battling with the technology there. If we're running any louder, started this week. But if you missed any of that or well, would benefit from hearing it again, we'll send that out.
1: So that's the first thing that I thought we could do. The
0: second thing I thought we could do is go and have a look at Belfast. And if you're here this morning, you'll have heard me mention this. We said that slide is available, the uh, bus trip slide. Um, we have planned uh, a bus trip for a fortnight from tonight. Um, so the details are on the screen there. We're going to be leaving at gathering at 5.15, getting away by half past five for an hour and a half of a trip. Um, why might I do this? Um, why might I suggest this? It looks like a rare gimmick at first. Um, I explained this morning the reason why I, I am suggesting that we do this. Uh, I, I did this bus tour about, uh, it must have been about six years ago. Um, Claire, and the kid, Claire and I and the kids decided one Saturday it would just be tourists in our own town, go and have a look at Belfast. And it was brilliant if you've ever done it um, either yourself or with a a relative visiting, you'll know what a great experience it is. But it wasn't it wasn't just great uh, in a fun or entertaining kind of way. I remember two impacts it had me, and I explained this this morning without arguing it. It brought us into parts of the city that I'm not used to going. Um, and that's a good thing. You may not know this, but you only use. And I've chosen that word carefully, we only use certain parts of Belfast. We use Belfast. Most of us are in a parasitic relationship with our city. We're looking to see what it can do for us, what we can get out of it. We're not yet in a Jeremiah twenty nine relationship with our city. Praying for its peace and prosperity. Giving ourselves sacrificially to Edmunds people. So that's the first thing. There's many parts of the city we normally use. This will give us a chance to see some other parts. And the second thing that happened for me in my prayers, that might happen for, for you, is that I came away from that trip feeling more connected to and more prayerful about Belfast than I've ever done before. The sake of an hour and a half on a Sunday evening, I think that's well worth it. So that's what we're doing in four time. Um, I explained this morning. We'll repeat it. We're putting it on a bit earlier because driving around Belfast in the dark wouldn't be very helpful uh, for any of us. There'd be nothing much to see. Um, and I also said this morning what I'm suggesting is, if you want to bring your tea with you, a pack. It, and uh, then I will see you at a bit of time in your life. You'll have a full afternoon and a full evening with a bus tour in the middle. So, um, by the way, this has all gone far too well. We have a 175-year bus, and I think 110 people signed up this morning at the first opportunity, and we still have two weeks of signing up to go. Uh, so, th- this this could be the one that's. Uh, this girl that brings the camels back with the, the church uh, treasurer, but hey, um, let's, let's proceed. We've, we've mapped out, I've been working with Sam and Richie, and this will mapped out some teaching that we're going to start to do then once we get past the, the bus trip into October. Um, it'll be a learning time for me. Um, I look forward to more about what God's heart for the city is Um, and yeah I sense that we're going to go through these next few months and have an entirely different picture of Belfast by the time God's finished with us that's my hope and my prayer let me begin to do this thing that we're encouraged to do in Jeremiah chapter 29 to to pray for our city let me pray this morning Father God, we thank you for giving a few moments this evening to begin to think about something that's going to take us a long time to think about Wow, well, That's the, the city in which you've placed us. Lord, we ask your forgiveness when we read your word there in Jeremiah 29 when we see the kind of relationship that you long for your people to have even with foreign pagan cities cities of exile, places where we don't feel at home Lord we sense that your heart is for these people Lord forgive us for the times when we have lived in our ghettos when we have been content to try and find a life that's comfortable and convenient and, and nice for us. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have used the city rather than blessed it. And we pray, Lord, that you would in your grace and mercy, open our eyes and show us what your heart is. For we say, as we said at the very start of this evening, we're open to you to come and to lead us and to guide us and to show us the way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.